All right, let's uh, take our Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we're still in chapter 1, of course, we just really started the book, so I'll be doing some review today to bring you up to speed. Let's pray uh, as I look uh, before I go to the preaching. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for this book that you've given us, this Gospel Uh, that shows that you are the greatest servant that ever came into this world. And I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would learn to be servants as we move through this gospel in a way that exemplifies those in it and the Lord Jesus Christ as the supreme example. And I pray, Lord, that this next coming year would be a year in which we are more apt to give ourselves up for the work that you have for us. I pray that we will be more conscious of souls slipping off to eternity, that we would be very conscious of giving them the gospel and allowing the light of the gospel to penetrate the darkness in which envelops them both outside of them and inside of them. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us by the truth uh, to live from our very souls for Christ every day of our life, seven days a week. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would truly be vessels in the servant's hands to show forth the holiness you're producing in us every day. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. So the Gospel of Mark, uh, so far you'll quickly, you quickly realize that it, it really doesn't contain what other Gospels contain, and that is there's no genealogical record to trace uh, his lineage, or uh, is there any narrative of his early life? It just goes right to John the Baptist and right to the baptism of Jesus Christ. Of course, that is by purpose, because his main point is to give us a Christological focus of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the center of the gospel. He is the gospel. He is what the prophets spoke of in the Old Testament. He is the center and person in the New Testament. So from Genesis to Revelation, there's one central person in the Bible, and that is Jesus Christ. And so that becomes really important for us. And so what follows is the good news concerning Jesus Christ, who is, it says in verse number one, who is the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah's path was to be, was to be prepared by a herald in the wilderness. And of course, It says in verse 1, the beginning, the term beginning serves to recall that it is God who initiates redemption on behalf of people. So then it is the redemptive activity of God which provides salvation for people from the beginning till now and forever. Matter of fact, we, there's probably... Nothing more that we need is to hear the joyful sound of good news, of joyful tidings, 
of the coming salvation promised to us in the Word of God. So Mark is giving us the, a forward-looking end-time perspective. And as the prophet Isaiah already said, is that how lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, and that would be the salvation of our God. And interestingly enough, the narrative does not start, as I mentioned already, in a city location. It's not, it doesn't start in a, a place where there is a lot of people or there is a lot of information that's moving around. It starts in the wilderness. And so this motif of the wilderness becomes prominent in verse number 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and then in verse number uh, 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. So this point that he's making here of something that starts in the wilderness is actually very important because we see the herald in the wilderness, which will be John the baptism. Then we see that while John the baptism is in the wilderness, the Lord comes to the wilderness, and then Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. So the wilderness theme is in the mind of the author, should be in our minds too, because it immediately brings us back to the exodus, through the wilderness, all right? The wild region uh, of the wilderness is chosen by God for John the Baptist's work in order to really remove people away from their ordinary occupations, their interests uh, that have been fixed in their minds and hearts away from spiritual things, and then to focus in on their own spiritual condition, and then this great saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's going to come out of the mouth of this strange man in the wilderness. So Mark uh, wants his readers to know that something is happening prophetically, right? Uh, the author is telling us that this particular strange man is going to make the path straight when everybody's thinking, well, I didn't know the paths were crooked. You know, I, I thought everything was going all right. It was a time of peace. It was a time of actually everybody was involved with the religions of the day. Judaism actually was at its height during this time. And yet, again, the prophets are saying this one is going to come, and he's going to come in the wilderness. He's not going to come into the temple. He's not going to come into the middle of the religious establishment. He's not going to come in the middle of the city. He's not going to come there. He's going to be out in the wilderness, and you've got to go to him. And that's going to be John the Baptist. All right? And, of course, remember Exodus. When we think about Exodus, in Exodus 20, where it says, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and bring you into the place that I have prepared. So see, that passage contains God's promise to send his messenger before the people. That's the first exodus through the wilderness of Canaan. Then, of course, Malachi, which is the last prophet 
of the Old Testament says the same thing, but pointing to John the Baptist. He says in chapter 3, it says, Behold, I am going to send you my messenger. He will clear the way before you. And then, of course, Isaiah chapter 40, which uh, he is actually referring to in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, and which says this, A voice calling, Clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert in the desert, a highway for our God. So in that passage, he's talking about announcing a second exodus. And of course, that exodus is not going to be an exodus out of Egypt into the wilderness where God would guide them and protect them in the wilderness. In the wilderness, he would give them the tabernacle, he would give them a leader, Moses. He would give them protection. He would not even allow their clothes, their shoes to wear out. And he would give them a whole sacrificial system to be able to approach God in the right way so they can have their sins atoned for and be made right with God on a yearly basis. He did that in the wilderness. But now we have a second exodus, which God brings everybody into, wants everyone to see in which they too must be prepared for the Lord. They too must have all the ways made clear so people can come to know what final deliverance is that has been prepared by God so we can be set free from not the bondage and the slavery of, is- of Egypt, but the bondage and slavery of our own sin, of the our own darkness that we have in our heart. And so this is a huge event. Mark is is seeing in the coming of John the baptizer and Jesus in the wilderness the fulfillment of the promised salvation in which the prophet Isaiah had spoken some 700 years before. So then the theme of fulfillment is of strategic importance. That is the beginning of the joyful tidings of salvation and the intrusion of the rule of God into this world. In other words, the appearance of John the baptizer is an end time event of the first magnitude because John comes on the scene as a result of divine appointment in the fulfillment of prophecy when God hasn't spoken through a prophet for 400 years. And now John steps on the scene. This is a a tremendous appearance. And remember, there is also a prophetic stir going on since the birth of Christ and the birth of John the Baptist. Both miraculous in their own way, And yet, since that time, for 30 years, there has been a prophetic stirring in that region of the world. And now we see John the Baptist stepping on the scene. And what does he step into? He steps into an environment that is steeped in religious formality and comfortable hypocrisy. If you notice in verse number 2, he says, It is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So see, 
he is coming to a time in which the paths are crooked and the road is filled with obstacles. And John has to clear those obstacles out of the way. So he preached in a society deadened and shallow. He preached to a society that was indifferent spiritually. They were lackadaisical about spiritual matters and they were people affected by all kinds of subtle forms of hypocrisy. And remember, what it means is that these people were going through the temple. They were coming to the Lord and worshiping the Lord, but their heart was not in it. They were just going through the motions, the religious motions that people go through, not only then, but even in in our days. They get up. uh, Most people go to church two times a year, Easter and Christmas, right? They go through their own design religious formality and they think because they do that they're they're right with God somehow and that everything's going to be all right because they entered into the door of a building that is called a church and yet many cases those people are far from the Lord those people are not prepared to meet God they're not prepared for death they are actually people who have designed their own way of worship. They're just living in idolatry and they're going along their life hoping everything will turn out good or beneficial in, in respect to their life and they don't know what's coming. They don't know the train that is coming the opposite way and they're on the track going the other way and they're going to collide in a big way unless God does something, unless God comes in and rescues them, unless they see that the obstacles that are in their heart and the darkness that is in their heart gets cleared away so God can prepare a people to come to him and lay aside the religious formalities and lay aside the comfortable hypocrisies. Uh, Because remember, in Malachi's day, in which he really brings in this message from was a day where the priests were failing in their duty. The offerings were blemished and shoddy second bests and the service in the temple was a weariness to the priest and to the people. And so this repetition of religious routine leads actually to a deadly type of spiritual condition because they're not being examine no one's examining their hearts to see how they're doing spiritually and if you don't come to the word of god if someone's not there to show you how to examine your heart you'll just go along your way and of course without examination it just leads to coldness and numbness people that are aware of their unaware of their spiritual condition and so the bottom line would be this outwardly things seem to be all right But inwardly, things are not right. They're not right with God. So the Lord, through the prophet, gets to the heart of the matter and really exposes the hypocrisy. So John comes on the scene at that time in that atmosphere, in the condition of the world at that time. And then that means that John had a particular mission. And the mission of John was found in verse number 2 and 3, which I mentioned, that he will prepare a way and he will make ready the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So that John the baptizer was a forerunner. 
He was to go before someone who would come after him, and he was to clear out the way. He would prepare and make fully ready a road for the Messiah to walk on, putting it into a fit condition for the Lord to travel over. Now, I mentioned last time that roads in the, in the east were generally poorly maintained. Um, a coming king, what, what he would do is he would send people ahead and make sure that the roads were uh, adequately cleared for his caravan. And even sometimes they had to build the roads that were washed out or completely destroyed. So when the king came through that there, he's not going to stop for them to prepare the roads, he is actually going to continue forward because someone came in advance to prepare everything so he can get where he got to go. And that's what John did. So spiritually, this was John's advanced task. He removed the hindrances in the hearts of the people so that they would be ready to receive the coming one. Now, of course... If a person was a Gentile and not a Jew, they would probably be involved with some kind of idolatry and some kind of religious system. But the Jews, they were already involved with Judaism and the temple worship, right? So they were thinking in their mind, we don't need to be prepared, we're already prepared. What we're waiting for is Messiah to come to turn over the Roman government, and then to establish his kingdom. That's what they're waiting for. But wait a minute. That's not what John's task is. John's task is to remove the hindrances in the Jewish heart, too. In the hearts of the people who were religious. That's what he came to do. So the picture is, for the winding roads in to be made straight and the rough obstacle ridden roads to be leveled and made safe for the coach of the Lord before his arrival. Spiritually, John called for moral and spiritual alteration in the hearts and the lives of people, and he does that by his, not only his mission, but his message. And of course, his message is pretty clear uh, John was to bring a large segment of the Jewish and Gentile population back to a heart faith in the Messiah or in the Lord Jesus Christ. The very heart of the Baptist message was to prepare people to meet God. And so the Gospel of Luke uh, says that it adds something to what John's mission was, and that was to make ready the people prepared for the Lord, or to turn their hearts, of the hearts of the fathers, back to the children. And that means to resp restore a spiritual, ready people to receive God, to receive the Messiah. So also, at a later time, to bring back the spirit of the nation and then to make ready a prepared people for the Lord, that the fathers themselves the religious fathers would gain wisdom to turn the children back to God, and they weren't doing that at that time. They actually have given up that a long time ago. So that means that John had a very significant and specific 
and a very heart-cutting message for the people. And what was that message in verse number 4? His message was, in the wilderness to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what his message was. And the baptism was a baptism characterized by repentance. However, his baptism was not intended to induce repentance, but was rather to be administered to those who were repentant. Once they heard John was in the wilderness preaching, people came to see him. They wanted to hear what he had to say because they knew in their heart they needed a change. They knew in their heart that there was a a prophetic climate going on since the birth of John and Jesus that has not subsided yet, that something was going to happen. The time was ripe for someone Uh, something to happen spiritually, and so they come to John to hear his message. Repentance, remember, is a deep change of mind, which issues really in a definite turning away from sin, that is, an altered attitude towards sin, which has its proper, proper fruit in a deliberate change of context conduct to live for the Lord. And so John the Baptist preaches repentance of sin, paving the way for pointing sinners to the Messiah. Now, this baptism was, was, uh, was kind of a strange thing for the Jewish person to hear because it was really connected to Gentile a Gentile who wanted to be connected to Judaism would be baptized into Judaism. But if a Jew was already a Jew in Judaism, well, he didn't have to be baptized into a relationship or covenant community with God. So see, John is saying, listen, this washing, this baptism symbolized the moral and spiritual transformation necessary to enter into a covenant relationship with God, this physical rite of baptism itself did not produce this spiritual result of forgiveness of sins, but submission to this baptism as an outward testimony of personal inward repentance from sin was the condition of receiving divine forgiveness. And remember, Did the people want to be forgiven? Yes, because that was the good news. To be forgiven by God completely and forever. And so John is coming and bringing this old message back to life as a prophet of God. And the people were yearning to hear it who came out to hear him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And remember that the root meaning for this Forgiveness or remission of sins is that of sending that sin away, of dismissing that sin. It really speaks of the cancellation of sin without demanding the deserved punishment that goes with that sin. And of course, remember that punishment is the wages of sin is death, spiritual and eternal death. And it speaks here of the cancellation of sin uh, and 
the forgiveness of sin based on the vicarious sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In other words, as I mentioned already, that the sins are taken from the sinner and are sent so far away in such a way that even God will not find them on the day of judgment. See, that's in the mind of when John is preaching about this and the people, all Old Testament stuff, that God would cast that sin as far as the east is from the west and that God would, it would be like a writing blotted out. It would be cast into the depths of the sea and there could be really no kinder words and sweeter words than to have any poor sinner know that they have been forgiven by God. Not that they had to bring a sacrifice, but they had a sacrifice. One-time sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ. So, John had plenty of candidates for his baptism. In verse number 4 and 5, or number 5, it says, All the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. And notice what they were doing. They were confessing their sin. So they knew They were getting his message. They understood that the obstacles in their heart were their own sins. That was the road that needed to be made straight. Those are the things that had to be removed so the Messiah could come and live in us by his spirit. See, that's what John was doing. And the people were getting it that were coming out to him. And remember, confessing your sin means to speak the same thing. God already knows your sin. So that means that the people repenting of their sins and coming for baptism were also openly agreeing with the divine verdict concerning their deeds. That true confession implies our willingness to call our sins by name, the name that God gives them. Now, so that means, and that means religious hypocrisy, that means religious formalism, that means going through the motions, that means just playing the game of Christianity and not having a heart that has been cleared out by God so you can actually worship God in spirit and in truth. So that brings me to the identity of John that I didn't look at last time, the identity of John. And why is that? Why is identity so important? The reason why is because identity showed forth the humility of the one speaking the message. You know, we get caught up too much in our lives thinking that methods are important and strategies are important. But you know what is important to God? The character of the person especially the character of the person bringing this message to people who needed their hearts cleared out of sin and needed to be prepared to meet the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see here that John's identity is brought before us. And what the question would be this, was John the Baptist a prophet or not? Well, if anybody had any doubts in their mind who he was, these scriptures make it very clear. Look what it says in verse number 6. John 
was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. You would say to yourself, what is that doing there, and what does that have to do with anything? But it has to do with John's identity. Right? Because if the people said, this is a crazy man, this man is insane out here in the wilderness. Look the way he dresses. Look at what he eats out here. He has no home. He has no address. He's, he's nuts. Why should we listen to him? Well, Mark and all the gospel writers put this in there because if you notice here, the first thing is that he has a long, loose robe woven of ca- camel's hair, right? Who wore camel's hair in the Old Testament? prophets. In fact, a passage in Zechariah says this, you don't turn there, just listen, it says, I also will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. In other words, John is being connected to the Old Testament prophets. And if that wasn't enough, it says, secondly, that he had a leather belt around his waist. And to keep, of course, to keep his loose robe in place. So both parts, his dress, of his dress, John was given, is the likeness of the prophets of old. In particular, the likeness of Elijah was in view. In 2 Kings chapter 1, and verse 7 and 8, This is what it says about Elijah. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? In 2 Kings 1, verse 8, they answered him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle around his loins. And he says, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah the prophet. So in other words... John is being connected in his identity with the prophets. In other words, what he is saying comes from God. And don't make the mistake that he is not a prophet. Don't make the mistake that he is not one that was sent from God. And of course, Leviticus 11.2 comes in the last part of that verse where it says, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. So if you have a a resolution this year to change your diet, maybe this is something you want to consider. All right? And uh, nonetheless, four variety of locusts were allowed to be eaten in Leviticus 11.22, which were considered clean to God's people. And so he he had four variety of locusts to eat. And so, see, there was not just one. He had, a, he had a couple things on his menu and to eat. And, and, you know, but that really, you know, high source of uh, protein. See, in other words, what this passage is saying here very clearly to anyone who was listening then was John was a prophet and n- make no mistake. See, that's the point. And that means that his words were from God. No, on the other hand, John is a good illustration of how little we need here below. Something we're prone to forget. He's a reminder to us that our concerns in this life must be higher than food and drink, 
It must be higher than houses and clothing. It must be higher than money and occupation. See, it's, it's, it is profitable for all of us to often give our thoughts to higher things, to spiritual things. And so John is a good character to look at to say, hey, I can scale down my life. I don't need that many things in life. I don't need to be here at this point in life or there at that point in life. No, I can live simply and at the same time remove distractions that keep my thoughts thinking about the spiritual things in life, which are the most important things in our lives, is to think on higher things than we usually think about. And John, of course, had no greater and higher message than than to prepare people for the Lord, right? But you know what? He's not much different than you and I as parents. It's our job to prepare our kids for what? For the Lord, right? It's our job to prepare ourselves for the Lord. When we disciple people, it's our job to prepare people to live for the Lord. So see, John's message resonates with us today. He is a great example of preparing people, not only in his message, but in his character. You could not look at John the Baptist and say there was something wrong with him. There was something I couldn't follow in his life. You had to look at John the Baptist and say, He is a great example of what it is to live your life for the Lord. And that life backed up his message and made it powerful. It made it powerful. And so John's identity is important. But then notice something else in our passage. John's character is brought out even more in verse number 7 because there's two things about his character, but it's encompassed in one point, that John was very, very humble. His humility comes out. And his humility really recognized there's a difference between him and the one who's coming after him. There's a difference in their persons. And notice in verse number 7 the difference. All right, John says in verse number 7, and he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming. So John immediately knows that it's not him who is the one people should be focusing their attention on. It is the one who comes after him. So he is saying that the one who comes after him He is greater because I am just the herald. I am just the forerunner to prepare the way for the king who comes after me. So John really bore witness to the supreme dignity and the power of the Messiah who was coming near and was ready to be revealed by John to everyone. And John was saying, no, he's greater than me. And that's points to his humility because he knew that he was lesser than him a second thing was john said in verse number seven is that he is mightier than me he says he was preaching and saying after me one is coming who is mightier than i see his strength and power are far above anything seen in me or heard in my message john is again showing his humility in the sense that the one who comes after me is not only 
greater than me, but he is mightier than me. Now, that's significant because, you know, if you, if you recollect in your mind what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, or what Jesus Christ says about John the Baptist, and what did, John, what did Jesus say about John the Baptist? Well, in Matthew eleven eleven, he says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said that of John. So you can never say that John wasn't a great man. He could have been the greatest prophet and greatest man who ever lived. If Jesus had that estimation of him, then ours shouldn't be any less. But John is saying, wait a minute. In my task that God's given me, I'm great. And there's a might that comes with my preaching and ministry because of what I'm calling people to do. But there is one greater than me coming. And there's one mightier than me coming. And why is that? Because he's coming, the one coming is God's son, higher above me, unlike me in all ways. And notice what he says at the end of verse number 7. He says, I am not fit to stoop down and untie long of his sandal. So again, showing his humility. Now, if you wrap your mind around that, it was the humblest slaves or servants' tasks to unfasten the straps of their master's sandals or the honored guests that their master had invited to their home and then take them away and to clean the dust off of them. It would be the lowliest of the servant who did that. And John is saying, I am so below Christ. I can't even do that. Again, he is, John adds, I'm not even going to bend down and tie, untie his sandals. So this is a concrete expression for the greatness of coming. John is actually saying, I'm nothing compared to him. So don't put your view upon me and think that I'm something. I am nothing compared to the coming, the one who's going to step on the scene very soon and then a second thing is not only he, he uh, identifies the difference in his their persons but he identifies the difference in their works and if you notice in verse number eight the difference in their works is this i baptize with water john said in fact the importance of interpret interpreting this passage of scripture becomes significant here because if you notice what it says is that i, I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That means that uh, this genitive here is probably locative, meaning it has to do with location, right? In other words, John says, listen, in my works, I just baptize you with water. That's the location in which I minister in, all right? Yes, it is a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, but notice he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mine is geographical and local. His is spiritual. A realm that I can't even get into. So, in the case of the Spirit, the location is of full. The more powerful one, Jesus Christ, would baptize people in the realm or in the Spirit. 
He is the one, the Son of God, who can pour out the Holy Spirit and even only after completing the redemptive work and then ascending into heaven can he send the Holy Spirit. See, none but the Son of God who has gone to the Father after completing the redemption for humanity and for those who would come to know him could send, then send down his Spirit. John could not do that. In fact, if you are familiar with your Bibles, why don't we turn over to John chapter 16? Because remember in Scripture that the Holy Spirit of God could not come to this earth unless Jesus left and went back to heaven. So John 16, verse 7, it says this, But I tell you, this is the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. The Helper shall not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. The Helper, of course, is the Spirit of God. And verse 80 says, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and right and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And then verse number 12 and 13, it says, And I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But, verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. In other words, that Jesus Christ is going to, who baptizes uh, those who come in repentance and faith into the body of Christ and the Spirit God has given us to indwell us to do what? To make us holy, right? To set us apart unto God. God has done His redeeming work before the Father that's done completely and forever, but while we're here on this earth, the Spirit of God is given to us to set us apart. Matter of fact, one thing you'll learn once you become a believer is the one thing the Spirit of God's going to make you is obedient. That's the what he's he's going to make you obedient to the Word of God. And you're going to want to obey his commandments, and his commandments are not going to be burdensome to you. It's going to be something you want to do. Why? Because you have a new heart. Your heart's been cleared away from all the clutter. Your heart's been forgiven completely. Your sin is sent away. Now the Spirit of God indwells that clean vessel. And now He's going to take, remove all the corruption. It's like this. When you, if I look at you, or if we look at a, a brand, a nice new shiny apple, it's red on the outside. It looks delicious, right? And you bite into it, and inside of it it's mealy and brown and filled with corruption, right? Well, that's who we are, right? On the outside, we may look all right, but on the inside that God sees, he sees all the mealy corruption, all right? And when you're a believer, you're forgiven, but you are not made completely clean, right? 
Every single day, the Spirit of God's going to work on your inner heart, and He's going to show you. And, and remember, repentance is not just turning from your sin. It's putting your sin off and putting on righteousness, putting on the opposite of what you were doing. If you were rage and anger, then you need to put on a spirit that's not filled with rage and anger, but actually filled with gentleness, meekness, and right? And the Spirit of God is going to do that in, on you and in you, and we're going to see when I preach next week on Jesus' baptism, that that becomes very clear what Jesus did in our behalf, not only to redeem us and justify us, but, remember, He gives us His righteousness. And that righteousness is being produced in us by the Holy Spirit of God. And what is holiness anyway? Holiness is inward purity. It is inward cleanliness see we are saved and justified in order to become holy it's not just for naught it's not for you to go back to the, your old sins and to do what you want to do it's for you to become holy because the spirit of truth the holy spirit that indwells you is going to keep setting you apart and setting you apart and setting you apart, and cleaning that brown, ooky corruption inside your heart, and cleaning and sweeping of your heart until someday you're going to open your eyes in glory, and then you'll be perfect. But until now, then, the Spirit of God's got a lot of sweeping to do. He does. But you know what? You have to see that He's sweeping your heart. You're removing things from your heart. See, that's part of sanctification. That's not done yet. In fact, that's what God does on us, but we cooperate. And see, that's really important. So let me just get back. So what I'm saying is that John's work is important because it lays the foundation of how one is prepared in order to come into the presence of God. See, if you're not justified and forgiven of your sin and the Spirit of God's not working on you to make you holy, Without holiness, it says in Hebrews, you'll never see the Lord. He's making us ready for the very presence of God. Not just now to profess Christ and live for Christ now, but someday we will be in the presence of God and we will be perfect then, we'll be glorified then, and we will be able to live in the presence of God with great excitement and joy. So, all this happens, and what, what, what goes on is that now the Lord gets drawn into the wilderness. So now we come to Jesus' baptism in the wilderness. And John's voice was the voice of the restoration of prophecy. God is speaking through a prophet again after 400 years. The most radical thing about John in the wilderness is what he did, which I want to leave you with this morning. What he, he called Israel into the wilderness to baptize them when they didn't think they needed to be baptized. In the Old Testament times, there was proselyte baptism for the Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. I mentioned that. And they did this because they were considered unclean. Gentiles were considered unclean, and the baptism was a picture of washing, back, at least proselyte baptism. 
But there was no baptism for the Jews. There was no baptism for the religious Jewish leadership. No way. They, they didn't have to do that. See, this was a cleansing ritual in order to become members in the covenant community of Israel. They didn't need to become members. They were already members. See, this is what's so radical about what John was preaching. Here comes John, who instead of calling the Gentiles to be baptized, which he did also, he does a very radical and unheard thing. He calls the Jews to partake in proselyte ritual cleansing. John is called in his preparation the whole nation of Israel to be subject to this baptism. His message is repent and have your sins forgiven. The kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, John was so emphatic when he was calling the Israelites to have their heart cleansed and their the obstacles in their way and have their sins forgiven, even though John, uh, uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark doesn't bring it out. Well, there's a couple passages of Scripture that brings it out. Just turn back with me to Matthew for a, a second, to Matthew chapter 3, because there's analogy given by the writers of Matthew and the writers of Luke, but specifically Matthew, about the critical nature and the urgent calling for that moment in time to the nation of Israel. And he, look what it says in Matthew chapter 3 and verse number 10. It says, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is, he's saying to them, listen, you guys, this is not some horticulture class in looking that the axe is already at the root of the tree. The tree is ready to cut down. See, the tree cutter has that the tree is fruitless and needs to be eliminated. Who is the tree? The tree is real. And they need cleansing. They need pruning or they get cut down. They need the made, to have their way made flat and straight and obstacles are cut down. So John also uses another al- analogy uh, to stress the need of the moment. Look at verse number 12 of Matthew chapter 3. It says, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Remember what they did Back then, we, we may don't ha- maybe don't have the picture in our mind. When they brought in the, uh, the wheat, they would take these big winnowing forks and throw it up to the wind, and the wind would blow the chaff away. The chaff was the bad part, right? And that's what they would do all day until there was no chaff left, so you would have the pure product. And so he's saying here, listen, 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 Israel, you are the chaff, ready to be blown away and burned, Unless you repent. That's the message that John was bringing to them. The crisis of separation between the wheat and the chaff is about to break through. In other words, the Messiah is about to appear on the scene and you're not ready. You're not ready. That's what John was saying to them. And he says, this is how you get ready. You come 
and submit yourself to the decisions for the forgiveness of sins. And clear, let the Lord clear out your heart, let him forgive your sins, and make you ready for the coming Messiah. In other words, he was plainly saying to Israel, Israel, you think you're clean, but you're unclean. You are as unclean as the Gentiles, and they need to be cleansed and prepared for the Messiah, and so do you. You're no different than them. In fact, you're worse than them because you've had the truth, you've had the sacrificial system, and you weren't ready when the Messiah came. You had the prophets, and you didn't listen to them. So see, in other words, the next day, it says in the Gospel of John, when John was baptizing, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's where he pronounces Christ, right there in the wilderness, uh, before he baptizes him. So this again reminds us that people just don't stumble into the presence of the Lord. They're not born into a relationship with God. They don't come up with it on their own need to be cleansed and prepared for the presence of God by repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then the endurance that makes them holy until they actually are in the presence of God. See, that's what is going on. And you know what? The message is no for them as it is for us today. Right? That's That's the only way that anyone is made right with God. Is that if you come humbly and ask God to save you, forgive you of your sins, cleanse you, and then give you his spirit so he can make you holy, so you can live the rest of your life that you have on this earth for the Lord until he decides to take you from this earth. And remember, death is only a doorway into his presence. It is no longer an enemy to those who believe. And so, see, that is the message, and that is crucial in the Gospel of Mark, you'll see it, you're going to see it all through the Gospel of Mark, and it is crucial for us today that that message has not changed, that people need the Lord, and that's the bottom line. And the part, the part of it that we have to get is that he's called us to do it. John the Baptist may be the voice crying in the wilderness, but you know what? We're the voices crying in the wilderness in our day. We have the light, we have the truth, we have the Gospel Go tell people. But remember this. Character is just as important as the message. You can know the gospel if your whole heart and life is riddled by disobedience and sin. God uses clean vessels to bring the message of the gospel to those who haven't heard it yet. So, so we have a responsibility once we are become Christians to walk in and to give ourselves over to obedience to the Lord. So we, when we speak and when we live, we speak and live the gospel. Right? Sin and have the Lord too. It doesn't work like that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your... Thank you how gracious you have been to us in giving us the word of God. We still, Lord, live in a country that we can meet together that we can preach wherever we want, 
that we can read the Word of God without much hassle, that we can talk to people about the Lord. But Lord, I pray that we would seize the opportunities more often than we have. And I pray, Lord, that we would be very conscious and careful this coming year about our walk of holiness. That, Lord, if we proclaim ourselves to be believers, I pray, Lord, there would be enough evidence in our life to convict us of that besides our words. And I pray, Lord Jesus, you would use us as voices to bring the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who do not know it, who have not heard it. And I pray, Lord, that we would delight in seeing real conversions come to Christ, not only in our family, amongst our friends, but even our own children, that they would genuinely believe in you. And Lord, please, please from the kind of hypocrisy we have in our life, any kind of religious formality that could have crept into our soul. And I pray, Lord, we would stop and that we would always want to worship you in spirit and in truth from a, a heart that desires to obey and love Christ. In your name, amen.